to Luke chapter 20 with me this morning, Luke chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the very end of this chapter and the very beginning of of the next chapter. So uh, starting in uh, verse 45 of Luke chapter 20, we'll read verses 45 through 47 together. And in the hearing of all the peoples, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greatest condemnation. Today we're going to be talking, among other things, about leadership. I read up on all the uh, statistics available about Christian leadership this week, and one of the things I unfortunately have to report to you is that somewhere, sometime this week, statistically speaking, some church, just like this church in America, is going to find out that in one way or another, they've been misled by the pastor that they trusted and that they listened to, that sometime this week, a church in this country will find out that news. And I wonder what you would have to say to them if you could reach out to them before they heard that news or after they heard that news, what you would have to say with them, say to them. The truth is, is that this isn't just a church problem all over the world, not just in America and not just in the church People are being led astray by bad leaders, by false leaders, by deceptive leaders, by hypocritical leaders. And most of them, of course, don't know. That's because these leaders are actually being deceptive. Now, if you had a chance to speak to them, what would you say? What would you say if you had a chance to speak to a group of people who were being led astray by a group of or by one deceptive leader? Well, the leaders in this text are those bad leaders, and Jesus pulls no punches. There's a corresponding text in Matthew 23 that gets really, really intense. It's the full, I think, the the more full explanation of what, or the more full accounting of what Jesus says, and Jesus just tears into them. Uh, He says that they, they do not practice what they preach. He says that they put heavy moral burdens on others, but don't carry a fraction of the weight in their own lives. They love honorable titles and the best seats in the best places. Uh, They travel to the ends of the earth to win a convert and wind up making him twice a child of hell than they were. They make billions of new laws and create loopholes for themselves. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, cups that are clean on the outside, but on the inside aren't clean. This idea being that they go to great lengths to appear righteous and to present themselves in an appropriate way to impress people but go to no lengths to to, to pursue personal integrity, personal holiness. Uh, That's that's the bigger passage, Matthew 23, if you want to look at it. Luke cuts to the chase. He says, he provides us with the distilled version, and he gives us the center of the problem. He helps us to see the thing that's propelling all those other things. You know, it was helpful this week for me to realize, to think about the fact that hypocrisy is really more of a symptom than it is the, the cause, the, the disease. When, when we find someone, when you've, I'm sure you've been a hypocrite, by the way, uh, and you'll be less hypocritical if you admit that you've been a hypocrite. Uh, hypocrisy is a symptom. What, what's going on there is, is that we're, we're protecting something. We're pursuing something else. And, and we're not comfortable acknowledging and coming to terms with the difference between what we say and what we do. 
And Luke helps us to see that for all their hypocrisy, for all their external kind of peacockery, uh, they were, in fact, in love with two things, riches and recognition. Those were the two things they were about. They were about the approval of man, and they were about the accumulation of wealth. You see that in the text? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, showy money, love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, greediness, and for a pretense make long prayers. There's that sense of, I want to be recognized, I want to be thought of well. That, that, that's really the, the core of what Jesus is criticizing in these bad leaders. They have an inordinate love for recognition and for riches. So today, I just would say that that's exactly usually the case when we see a leader who is deceptive and hypocritical and so on and so forth, that those things are usually rooted in a greediness for recognition and riches and or riches. Now, I thought about this quite a while this week, and I think it's a bit of a chicken or egg question. The question is, does the position lead someone in this direction, or does the position attract people who have an unusual affinity for recognition and riches? Like, which is it? Does the position ruin people, or do ruined people pursue the position? Well, I, I, I say it's chicken eggs. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, the truth is, is that the Bible teaches pretty clearly that leaders should receive honor for their service. First uh, Thessalonians 5.12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Another version says, Give recognition to those who labor among you. Another version says, Give honor to those who labor among you. See, when biblical leadership is done right, it looks like a drink offering being poured out. When biblical leadership is done right, it looks like a slow and joyful dying to self. Being a Christian leader in the right way is noble, necessary, and difficult. And the good one should be honored. And the Bible's pretty clear about that. The Bible's also pretty clear that they should be rewarded financially. First Timothy five seventeen through 18 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Elders who rule well, if possible, should be blessed financially for their work. The good ones won't demand it, but the good ones should receive it. So this is a bit of a chicken and egg situation. I have no doubt that some people pursue Christian leadership because they are motivated by recognition and to a much lesser extent, let's be real, riches. <laughs> but I also have no doubt that there are some who pursue Christian leadership for all the right reasons and find themselves over time being seduced by the availability of honor and the availability of money. I think it works both ways. I think that both can happen. Either way, the problem is that these later leaders have become seduced by riches and recognition. And I would just say, I just pause and say, pray for me. Pray for your leaders. 
Pray for your leaders. There's, there's something going on here, one way or the other. This is a difficult line to walk. But what we see Jesus doing in this instance is very important. And one of the things I want to accomplish with this message today is to empower us with a theology of both honor and criticism for our leaders. That's important. A theology that allows us to honor our leaders when appropriate and a theology that allows us to criticize our leaders when appropriate. That's what we see Jesus doing. Jesus openly, in this case, condemns these men for their failure. Now, think about this for a minute. A second ago, we read 1 Timothy 5, which says that Christian leaders are worthy of double honor. But how does Jesus end this text, this passage? He says of these men, of these leaders, they will receive greater condemnation. So on the one hand, a leader doing it right should get double honor. And on the other hand, a leader doing it wrong is going to get what? Double condemnation. So what does that tell you? Well, that should tell you how much God loves his people. Man, imagine that your wife's car breaks down on the interstate. She's she's calling you. You're far away. And she says, actually, someone's pulling up. Hold on. Well, how's this going to go? You hear some commotion in the background. And she says, this this nice man is changing my tire. And he's going to follow me to the shop to make sure that everything's okay. Well, that man is suddenly your best friend. You are so appreciative that this stranger would step in and care for the person you love. But suppose it goes another way. Suppose that person pulls over to harm her. Well, suddenly that person is your number one enemy. You see, this biblical idea that Christian leaders are worthy of double honor or double condemnation tells you that God loves his people And the leaders that serve his people well, he wants to bless them. Not because he loves leaders, I mean, he does, but because he loves his people. And the ones who do not so well, he's angry. He's critical. He says, if you do it right, you're worthy of double honor. If you do it wrong, you're worthy of double condemnation. This is all evidence that God loves you. God has given you leaders. He, he calls people to lay down their lives for you. But this also reminds us of another issue. And that is, is that just by personality alone and somewhat by theology, in my experience, pretty much everybody I've ever met tends to veer in one of two directions. Some people find it very easy to honor their leaders and very difficult to criticize them. And some people find it very easy to criticize their leaders and very difficult to honor them. You ever notice that? Maybe, maybe you know that about yourself. Maybe you know that you tend to be someone who is eager to honor, but you really struggle to be critical. Or maybe you know that it's the other way around, that you are easily critical and struggle to honor. And what I want to do today, among many things, is to just lift up Jesus and say he doesn't have the problem of imbalance. Wherever we look at Jesus... We don't see just an ordinary human being 
who veers on one side or the other. He's the perfect man. He's God, the God-man. And he loves leaders and honors them and, and, thinks, and thinks a great deal out of the good ones, while also is very open and eager to criticize those who are hurting his people. In fact, Jesus surrounds himself with men who will be leaders, and he simultaneously with those men uh, loves them and also calls them out for their stupidity. So it's always difficult to find a balance. But what I would tell you this morning is, is that that's what you should be shooting for. You should be shooting for a theology. The Bible's got this for you. I'm not going to teach it all this morning, but the Bible's got a theology for you that will allow you to simultaneously honor leaders and at the very least admonish them when appropriate. And again, I won't get into all of the how-tos there because there's a very clear biblical way to do that. But the point is, is that God wants you to be the kind of person who can do both because Jesus was the kind of person that can do both. God does, though, love good leaders. He built his church with a hierarchy. There are a million ways the Bible is countercultural. And one of them is he actually thinks it's okay to have someone in charge. The Bible says that he gives the church leaders. He gives the church prophets and apostles and pastors. Good leaders are God's gift to the church. And I want to take a moment just to pause and tell you that this weekend I spent, I spent time most of the weekend with Seth and Dave planning out the year, planning out the preaching schedule, looking at, looking at how we can care for people better, looking how we can make this Sunday morning experience better. And I just want to just say that they are God's gift to this church. And, and thank you, men, for all that you're doing and have done to serve these people that God loves with all of his heart. And I, and I also want to make you aware, if you aren't already, of another massive demonstration of God's kindness and care for this church. God moved Victor Chinembuele and his wife Angela and the girls, which are downstairs, God moved them from St. Louis to Kansas City. Victor was an elder uh, on staff at Crosshaven with me. He led our worship. He was deeply involved in pastoral care, as was Angela, uh, serving our church, serving the ladies at Crosshaven. And in, in a very just clear kindness of the Lord, he orchestrated events in their life where now they're here. And I just, I hadn't announced that and let you know that. And I just thought this was a good time to do that. So, so welcome, Victor and Angela, and I'm excited. It's a huge blessing for me, but I want to tell you, point blank, it will be a much bigger blessing for you than it will be for me. They're a little annoying to me, actually. <laughs> no. no, I love you guys, and I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you're here, but I, I, again, it is, it's, it's, if you need another evidence of God's love for you, him sending these two here is an evidence of God's love for you. You just got to take my word on that. All right, so back to the message. Jesus honors good leaders, and he calls them out when they're not good. So by all means, let's give our leaders recognition and reward, but let's also realize that if it's not going correctly or if we have concerns, that the Bible accommodates for that as well. Now, I'm about halfway through my sermon, but I think I can be done because... Christian leaders are surely the only ones to ever get seduced by riches and recognition, right? 
right? Like I could just pack this up, be done, because only Christian leaders struggle with an inordinate love for the approval of other people or the accumulation of wealth, right? In fact, let me just give you my theory about why Christian leaders struggle with those two things because they're human. Christian leaders struggle with an inordinate love for riches and an inordinate love for recognition because they're human beings. And we, by nature, love the blessings of a relationship with God apart from a relationship with God. So maybe I should continue and talk to you about this idea of an inordinate love for riches and for recognition. The truth is, is that as you survey the Bible, you will see these are two of the biggest causes of spiritual shipwrecks in the lives of the people of the scriptures. And I want to be transparent with you and and hopefully care for you in this moment and just tell you this. These things are those kind of so obvious things that, and they're, they're, they're portrayed in such a way in scripture that you can get used to seeing them and think of them as things that would never happen to you. That you would never desert the Lord for love of money or that you would never turn your back on the Lord for love of the praise of men. And I just want to tell you that that's not why it's repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. It's not repeated over and over and over again in the Bible because it's not likely to happen to you. This is a big problem. It really does happen to people who don't even see it coming. They start out well and then look back and say, oh my goodness, where did this distance between me and God come from? Why am I so hesitant just to obey anymore? Why am I so timid in my witness? So stingy in my care. Where did this come from? Friends, this, these two sneaky, seductive, false loves can really sneak up on you. Now, I'm going to read a couple of verses about the inordinate love of money or the inordinate love of man's approval. And what I want you to do as I'm reading them is I want you to listen to the, the way that a consequence is always involved in the description of these sins. First one will be 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Matthew thirteen twenty two says, The seed sown among the thorns is the one who hears the word. Listen, this is is scary. The one who hears the word, but the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Proverbs 29, 25 says that the fear of man, and that's the biblical shorthand for the love of man's approval, the fear of man lays a snare. Do you hear hear the penalties, the consequences of these senseless, deceptive loves pierced themselves with many pangs? The word gets choked out in your hearts and it becomes fruitless. The fear of man lays a snare. Friends, there's a passage in John 12 I was reading where uh, it says that many believed in Jesus, but because they loved 
the praise of man more than the praise that comes from God, they stopped being open about their love for Jesus. They wouldn't walk with Jesus visibly. Why? Because one of these two big R's, the love of recognition and the love of riches, actually, not going to take the time, but it was both of those. By being kicked out of the synagogue, they lost both. They would lose both of those. They would have an economic hardship to endure. And of course, they would lose the approval of others. Leaders, friends, may get a double condemnation when they get seduced by these two things. But rest assured, regular size condemnation is more than you want. Right? You're not going to be able to finish the plate. Regular size condemnation is coming your way if you fall, if you are seduced by an inordinate love for the approval of others or the accumulation of wealth. It's coming. It will be yours. Think about this. I keep using the word seduced because I find it so fitting. These guys were trading Jesus for the gospel of lies. I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about how recognition, approval, reputation are all cheap substitutes for the radical acceptance that God offers you in Christ. Think about how the approval of others can tempt you to ignore, neglect, or undervalue the radical acceptance you have in Christ. They're counterfeits. They're substitutes. They'll fill your heart with a false sense of approval. They'll have you living for a false sense of recognition. They'll have you living for a false sense of identity. And it can happen before you even know it. Before you even know it, you can start living your life based on what other people think of you. It can begin to dictate how you speak. It can begin to dictate how you dress. Obviously, I'm free of that concern. Uh, It can... It can, it can dictate everything about your... Before you even know it, your zip code, your clothes, even what you eat can be dictated by what other people think of you. The same is true with the accumulation of wealth. It's this sneaky thing that sneaks up on you and tries to replace another essential element of your relationship with God. See, pursuing the approval of others is just kind of like that's what you're about replaces this fundamental blessing of the gospel, which is in Christ, I stand before the God of the universe, fully accepted, loved. I get to call the God of the universe, father. The central offering of the gospel is the approval of God. And subordinate and connected to that is this. If you call the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the creator of all things, father, and he loves you. And he's going to care for you and meet your needs. Do you see how the love of recognition and riches slowly creeps in and begins to be another gospel? It begins to provide you cheap alternatives to the things that only God can provide for you in Christ. It begins to provide you these little counterfeits that, that begin to feel like they're, they're, they're what you want. But if you would really examine your life... Because I I have no doubt that someone here, perhaps many people here, have begun to be seduced by reputation, recognition, or by riches. If you really looked at it, what you would see is this. It's not satisfying you. 
and you'll never have enough. You'll never get to the point where you say, I have enough approval. I have enough recognition. I have enough money. You'll never get there. Those things sneak in, try to replace the gospel, but they can't replace the gospel. They can only lead you to reject Jesus and the gospel. They can't give you what Jesus has for you. Well, what's the plan? If this stuff's sneaky and this stuff's common, what's the plan? You know, I kind of wish someone would have come up to me in my 20s, probably about 20, and said, okay, Chris, here's the deal. You come from genetic stock that's designed to live in the Arctic where there is no food for long chunks of time and where having an extra layer of fat is really good. But Chris, you don't live in the Arctic. <laughs> you live in the Corn Belt. Food abounds, and given your genetic predisposition and given your environment, you need to get a plan together on how not to get fat. See, it would have been a lot easier at 20 to have a plan how not to get fat than it is at 42 to have a plan on how to become unfat. <laughs> I wish someone had done me the favor and said, given your disposition and your environment, you need to put together a plan on how not to get fat. Well, I'm going to do you a favor. 20-year-old. <laughs> uh, friend, your sinful heart is always looking for ways to find benefits like a relationship with God without having to submit to God. Your nature loves recognition, and it loves security. And you know what else? You live in America. The Tower of Babel of celebrity. The Tower of Babel of whitewashed frontery. Recognition and likes and retweets. You live in an environment that is full of the false praise of false of the praise of false recognition and you are genetically predisposed to taking that in in a way that will ruin your souls you also love riches and security and comfort and you live in america you live in an environment where those things are conveyed to you consistently. Those things, the things they buy, conveyed to you consistently as the source of happiness, the way you will find security, the way you will find identity. So what's your plan? What's your plan? How are you going to live? How are you going to be who you are, acknowledging who you are, and live in this place and not succumb to the seduction of approval and accumulation. What's your plan? So, so let, me, let me just ask you some questions here. Do you agree that your heart is prone to love those things? Do you agree your environment is a problem in those two ways? Do you agree that being seduced by these things is potentially catastrophic? Then what's your plan? See, if you don't have one, it may be foolishness or it may be sinfulness. 
acknowledging intellectually that these things are damaging, but not really valuing a relationship with Jesus so highly that you are willing to proactively take steps to prevent your heart from being seduced by these two things. Well, Jesus offers us a plan. Sometimes these chapter divisions in the Bible don't really help us. Sometimes they hurt us. And in this particular case, I think that's, I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but there were no chapter divisions in the original manuscripts. And what you don't want to do in this particular instance is get to the end of verse 20 or the end of chapter 20 and say, okay, now we're moving into a new thing. That's not what's happening at all. Let me read it to you the way that it was written. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greatest condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and he said, truly I tell you, This poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. What you need to see is Jesus, in the first section, condemning someone. And in the second section, commending someone. And when that happens, what you need to understand is, is that Jesus is giving a put off and a put on. A heart attitude or a behavior we need to let go of and repent of. And a heart attitude and behavior we need to put in its place. See, we can never get over these sins that so easily entangle without replacing them with some righteous activity. And Jesus knows this. So all throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, you'll see like a sin forbidden, and then you'll be told, this is what you do instead, right? There's a passage, I'm just thinking of this in Ephesians, where it says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work hard with his hands so that he may have something to give to those in need. What's happening there? Don't steal anymore. Instead, work hard with your hands so that you have something to give to those in need. It's the put off, it's the put on. And in this passage, it's put off a love for recognition and riches and put on behavior that looks like this widow who out of her poverty was trusting God with radical generosity. That's God's plan for how you get over your inborn love for recognition and riches and the environment that makes it so easy to fall in love with those things. God's plan for you to, uh, to, to stay away from that, to, to prevent that, to overcome it is radical generosity. You know, uh, seduction of riches and recognition are like weeds. And radical generosity is like a weed barrier you put down to slow down the invasion of those two things in your life. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, don't be like these guys, be like this gal. Don't be like these people pursuing radical accumulation. Be like this person pursuing radical generosity. And I want you to notice three things about this. First one is this. Jesus just condemned these leaders. Please listen carefully to this. Jesus just condemned 
these leaders for being money-grubbing, and now he is telling people to give. Okay, I want you to hear that really, really carefully. In a culture full of leaders who abused people's generosity, Jesus commanded generosity. And I want to be very clear about something. I can't be a good leader. I can't be an obedient leader to God without challenging you regularly to radical generosity. But I don't want to challenge you regularly to radical generosity. I have a friend who uh, grew up in, uh, as an unbeliever and was a pretty hard drinker. And for him, after being saved, like, it's just... It's just, he can't get over the fact that he looks back and he sees that the role alcohol played in all of his debauchery. And he just, now that he's saved, he just can't go there. He just doesn't drink because he can't get over the way that alcohol was used in his past life. I have another friend who used to play in bars as a musician. And he's the same way about rock and roll. I'm so sorry for him, but he's the same way about rock and roll. Like he just can't see anything other than something that was used to hurt people, to deceive people. He just can't get past it. So he just can't, he doesn't listen to, to, to good music anymore. Uh, well, let me tell you my thing. I grew up in the era of Jimmy Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. I saw them on TV as a kid. I was a Christian who saw leaders greedily tell followers to give, 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 and see them utterly abuse that privilege. And it is hard for people in my generation to stand up and say, you should give generously to God. Because there are so many strings attached to that because my conscience has been so scalded by that. I want to tell you point blank. There are a number of pastors, just a generation of pastors, maybe two generations of pastors who stop teaching on this and let the bad leaders hijack this message. So that now, the only ones who talk about it are the chumps. And Jesus is just not going to do that. That's just not who Jesus is. Jesus isn't going to let the world hijack something that's so helpful. And so he says, right in the shadow of a bunch of leaders who are robbing widows out of their homes, this widow could be poor because of some dude over here. And he says, radical generosity is still the best practice that you can put into place to keep you from falling into a love of recognition and riches. Just think of the gutsiness and also the sincerity of Jesus in that moment to make a clear condemnation of greed and then call for radical generosity in the same breath. Well, Jesus is, this is the first point I want you to see. Secondly, Jesus is commanding a particular kind of giving, and that is sacrificial giving. What he's saying in this text is not tithe. Tithe is a baseline. He's not saying give, uh, give a certain amount of money. He's saying give a dangerous amount of money. That's what he's saying. He's, he's commending a level of faith that can only be felt and exercised 
in radical generosity. These sins, as I said, are weeds, and Jesus is saying these practices are the best way to keep you from having a heart full of weeds. Here's the thing. Sacrificial giving forces the heart back into alignment with God's care. In the sense when sacrificial giving causes you to look less important in the eyes of the world because you don't have as nice of a thing or whatever it is, it forces you back to find your identity in Christ. To the extent that it causes you to take risks and go without, it forces you back into caring for God's provision. You see, we tend to think of a lot of spiritual activities as things that flow out of a certain heart. But the truth is, is that God has given us a whole series of practical means of grace that inform our heart. Men, without getting too, keep this firmly PG or G, if you've been married for any length of time, you're probably grateful that occasionally your wife engages in certain activities, not so much because she's super interested, but because she knows that if she moves in that direction, her heart will follow. And if, if all of you are like, well, my wife, that's not, that's not my wife. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Men, giving is the very same thing in your relationship with God. Lead your heart and then look back and say, man, I'm so glad I did that. Man, I'm so glad I trusted God. I didn't really feel like it. I was really scared. I was really concerned. But man, I'm so glad God led me to do that. That's what giving does to your heart. Giving turns your heart in a Godward direction. And number three, I want you to consider where her money was going. The passage says she put her money into the offering box. Now, do you know what that money supported? The temple itself. And quite possibly some of the very leaders who Jesus was just criticizing. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is commending a woman's faithful giving, sacrificial giving, to an institution which will not be in existence much longer, to a building that isn't even going to be standing in a handful of decades. Jesus isn't commending her for her wise stewardship, her thoughtful discernment. Jesus is commending her for her faith to give and trust God. So what's the lesson here? The giver should be primarily focused on giving as an expression of worship and trust where the money goes is far, far less important, not inconsequential, but far, far less important than where your trust goes when you give. Say it again. Where the money goes is far less important than where your heart goes when you give. What's so interesting is, is that you will go to a church and listen to the preacher tell you to read your Bible and do your devotions week after week. So many churches, pastors say this over and over again. Read your Bible, do your devotions, pray. Do your devotions, pray. Would you sit through a church for 10 years where the pastor says on a regular basis, 
give because it too is a means of grace. It too will help your soul. It will help your soul in radical ways. And if you can't endure that, the weeds are creeping in. This woman's gifts went to support a building and an institution, both of which would be destroyed quite soon. In fact, the very next thing Jesus says in this chapter is, hey, and by the way, all of this, it's going down. And yet this woman in faith isn't concerning herself with all of that. She just loves God. And she just trusts him. She's just trying to be faithful. Randy Alcorn, who I think is the authority on this subject, on radical giving, wrote this. Another benefit of giving is freedom. And this is the, the main idea of the message. How do we keep ourselves from being allured by these things? Another benefit of giving is freedom. It's a matter of basic physics. The greater the mass, the greater the hold that mass exerts. The more things we own, the greater their total mass. The more they grip us, setting us in orbit around them. The more accumulation is the priority, whether that be esteem and approval of others, the more that tends to drive our behaviors, the more we orbit around the world of getting more and more approval and recognition. The more we drive toward the accumulation of riches and security, the more we tend to, to, to pivot and orbit around those things, and those become our, our, our sun. The greater the total mass, the more they grip us, setting us in orbit around them. And finally, like a black hole, they suck us in. Giving changes that. It breaks us out of orbit around our possessions. And I would add the praise of others. We escape their gravity, entering a new orbit around our treasures in heaven. So here's the deal. Bad leadership in whatever way gets seduced by a love of recognition and riches. And so does the, the reason why that happens is because it actually screws up bad followership. And everybody in this room up here, here, we're called to follow Jesus. And a love of riches and recognition will make us bad followers of Jesus Christ. And that in turn will make us bad leaders. Bad following makes us bad leaders. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your wholesome, uh, total theology relating to how we love and relate to our leaders. I have leaders. I have people that I strive to honor and submit to and also feel responsible to to correct and perhaps worse if it came to that, which I hope it never does. I'm thankful that, Jesus, you are the perfect example of what that looks like. You are wholly honoring and appreciative of leadership while also wholly, fully uh, willing to call it into account when it needs to be called into account. I pray for the leaders in this room, myself. I pray for, for the, I think there are a lot of people here who are leaders that don't realize they're leaders. Um, 
I pray, God, that you would bless us with freedom from a love of riches and recognition, that you just we just break that, Lord. You would do a miracle that would just make those things, if they become inordinately central in our lives, I pray you would just step in and redeem us from those things. Set us free, Lord, from that. I pray that you would give us faith to have a plan to proactively pursue you over and above the, 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 the blessings of this world that are great, they're just not God. They're, they're good stuff, but they'll never give us the identity we seek. They'll never give us the security we seek. But they sneakily kind of lie to us and tell us that they can. Lord, give us the faith to, to put down the weed barrier of radical generosity in our hearts to keep those things from springing up. Give us the faith to to trust you in these ways, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we're working, that we've worked through the book of Luke and you just keep having these next, these things for us, Lord. I thank you for that. Uh, Now as we get ready to take a break over the next few weeks, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness and care in, in directing us through these passages. I pray, God, that you would be with our hearts as we participate in the Lord's table. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.